0: Okay. Well, church, this morning, uh, we are continuing in our sermon series entitled Blessed Are the Peacemakers, where we're considering the wisdom that God has given to us in his word for how we as the people of God should handle the conflict that we encounter uh, while we live here in the kingdom of the world. We began a couple of weeks ago by acknowledging the perspective-shifting idea That the presence of conflict in our lives is not a bad thing. It's simply an inevitable reality in a fallen and broken world. But what is good or bad is the way in which we respond to the conflict in our lives. And so the first week was all about the motivation to, to glorify God by the way in which we respond to the conflict in our lives. We want to engage conflict well in order to glorify God with our lives. Last week, we covered the first step of engaging any type of conflict well, which was to first get the log out of our own eye. Before we ever even think of engaging someone else about the role that they might have played in a conflict, we need to consider our own contributions and our own culpability to that conflict first. And often that alone will lead us to overlook an offense altogether. We'll be able to, to simply let it go and to move beyond it, having taken that step. That should always be the first step of conflict resolution. But we also acknowledge that while many times conflicts can and should be overlooked, there are also many conflicts that are so harmful and so damaging Either to relationships, or to uh, one's witness for Christ, or or to the physical, or emotional, or spiritual health of someone else involved. There are some conflicts that are so damaging or destructive that they must be addressed. And that brings us to the second part of being a peacemaker. Where we actually engage with uh, with another person in this process. So please don't let it be lost on you that that we're now here three weeks into a, a series on peacemaking. And we're we are just now getting to the part where we involve another person in the process. Right. That should tell us something significant about the internal work that needs to be done in our hearts first in order to be able to engage and address a conflict well. But eventually we do often need to address wrongs that were done. And that's what this morning is all about. So we're going to discuss two main things today. Our purpose and our plan for engaging with someone else in conflict. Okay. First is the purpose. Like what do we hope to accomplish by engaging someone in conversation in conflict resolution? And second is the plan Uh, for addressing a conflict, right? How do we plan to accomplish our purpose? And so if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to open them with me to Galatians uh, chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, as we begin with our first point in considering the purpose for engaging in conflict. Why do we do it? What do we hope to accomplish? In Galatians chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, we read... Brothers and sisters, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore them with a spirit of gentleness. Now, did you catch the purpose of conflict resolution that is given in this instruction to the church? What the Apostle Paul is saying is that when someone has sinned, But when they've done something that that has hindered a relationship or damaged their Christian witness or, or has brought harm on themselves or on others. When they've done something that must be addressed and that cannot be overlooked. He said that you who are spiritual, he's talking to you, the church, you who are spiritual should restore them in a spirit of gentleness. The purpose Of conflict resolution is always restoration, to restore the one who's made a transgression. This is essential for us to understand, because for most of us, when when facing conflict with another person, particularly someone who has hurt us or who has harmed us in some way, Restoration usually isn't the first or the natural motivation of our heart, is it? What is? It's usually something much more like punishment or vengeance. Or maybe if you're really holy, justice. Right? But not usually restoration. There was a heartbreaking example of this on 60 Minutes Australia a couple of weeks ago when Gabby Petito's parents were being interviewed about the tragic disappearance and death of their daughter and the mystery that surrounded it all, which gripped our nation. And at one point in the interview, the interviewer asked them what they wanted from Brian Landry or, or from his family, since Brian could not be found. And Gabby's father said that we want vengeance. And for him to pay for his crimes... For the rest of his life. And then his wife softened this response slightly. By saying that they wanted justice. (laughs) But you hear more than that. In the father's response. He wants more than justice. He wants laundry to pay. And to suffer the way that his daughter did. And understandably so. It's impossible to imagine. What that family has been through. The raw and the unfiltered, the human response to that kind of suffering is to want to make someone pay. This has always been the case with humanity. We see it all the way back in Genesis chapter 4, where one of Cain's descendants, Lamech, said that I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. He said if Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77fold. Do you hear what he's saying? This isn't even eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. Right? Lamech killed a man for merely wounding him. That's not justice. That's more than justice. That's don't mess with me vengeance right there, right? This is in all of our hearts. may not be as drastic as Lamech or as raw and apparent as what we hear in Gabby Petito's Father, but it's present in all of us. And this is actually the reason why an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth was part of the Old Testament law. So that you could only do what was done to you and no more, right? Justice, not vengeance. The law was needed to restrain that desire for revenge that is inside of all of us. But here in Galatians, Paul is telling us that not vengeance, not even justice, but restoration should be the motivation and the desire of our heart in dealing with the conflicts that we have with others. If someone is caught in a sin, it needs to be addressed, but it should be done so. It should be be done so with, with the heart and with the goal of restoration. Our purpose should be to restore them. This is always God's heart for us when we've gone astray. We see it over and over and over again in the Scriptures. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, there's an account of a man who was committing a sexual sin that was damaging the witness of the church. And in in response, Paul tells the church to, to bring discipline upon the man, not in order to punish him, but in order that his spirit might be saved on the day of the Lord. And in 2 Corinthians, his next letter to that same church, Paul tells them that that man's punishment had been enough and that now it was time to forgive him and to comfort him and to reaffirm their love for him. The purpose of their discipline was never to punish him, but it was always to restore him. It wasn't punitive, but it was restorative. We see the same thing in Hebrews chapter 12, where we're reminded that God disciplines us Not to punish us out of anger towards us, but to help us out of love for us. God disciplines us for our good. And so every time we need to confront someone in a conflict situation, this should be our heart. This should be our motivation. This should be our our purpose in doing so, to restore them for their good. It doesn't mean there won't be correction or rebuke, or consequences, or hard words spoken, those may all be necessary, but they should always be done out of love, for the good of the one with whom we are engaging, in order to restore them, never to punish them. So the question for us becomes, how do we do that? Right? I mean, if our natural bent is towards vengeance, but we're called instead to restore, how do we do that? How can we overcome our natural tendencies and respond in a godly and life-giving way in the midst of conflict with others? The Apostle Paul gives us the answer to that dilemma in Romans chapter 12, verses 19 through 20, where he writes, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, and I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. What Paul shows us here is that we don't need to avenge ourselves, because there is a better alternative But we can leave our desire for revenge to the wrath of God. And the reason that we can leave our desire for revenge with the wrath of God is because He has told us that vengeance belongs to Him. That He will repay everyone for every wrong ever committed. There is no sin that will be left unaddressed by God. It will all be dealt with either by Christ on the cross for those who repent and who trust in Him, or in judgment in hell for those who don't. But one way or another, God has promised that He will take care of all of the wrongs that have ever been committed. He will not leave the guilty unpunished. And so we don't have to do that work of punishing. We don't have to seek out vengeance. God will take care of that for us. And He will do a far better job of it than you or I ever could. He will do it more justly. He will do it more thoroughly. And He will do it more mercifully than we ever could. And when we believe that promise and trust God with that promise, He will begin to free us. From our desire for vengeance. Because we know that God will handle it. And instead we can bless our enemies. We see this dynamic played out perfectly in Jesus' life. As recounted in 1 Peter 2, verse 23. Where Peter says that when Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. Jesus didn't have to fight back against the ones who were persecuting him because he knew God, his Father, would judge them justly. Instead, he blessed his enemies. We can do the same. Our purpose in engaging a conflict situation must always be for the restoration of the one with whom we are engaging. And if that's, not, if that's not the desire of your heart, then you need to go all the way back to steps number one and two in this process of conflict resolution. Ask ourselves all over again, how can I glorify God in this process? And then we need to spend more time getting the log out of our own eye. We need to spend more time considering our own shortcomings. Our own failings, our own sinfulness, our own guilt, and our own need for mercy. Until we realize that we, just like they, are in desperate need for grace and mercy and healing and forgiveness and restoration. Then we can go with them to to a heart to restore. And when our heart is ready, when, when our purpose in doing this is pure... Well, then God's word gives us a plan and a path to follow. A path is found in our gospel readings from this morning, from Matthew chapters 5 and chapters 18. So so flip there in your Bibles, if you have them, and let's consider those together. The the first passage, Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 23, said this. If you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, Leave your gift there before the altar and go first be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. And later in Matthew, Jesus raises the same issues again with a slightly different focus this time in chapter 18, beginning in verse 15. We read that if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen even to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. Now, there's a lot in those passages that is worthy of study and consideration and discussion And and that it would be very helpful in engaging in a process of conflict resolution. Uh, We don't have nearly the time we need to engage all of that thoroughly. But there are three points that I want to highlight very briefly out of those two passages. Because in those passages, they show us the right way to engage in conflict resolution, the right time to engage in conflict resolution, and the responsibility. ...to engage in conflict resolution. And so we're going to consider each of those really briefly this morning. First is the right way. And what we see in both of these passages... ...is that the instruction that Jesus gives us... ...is to go directly to the person with whom you are in conflict... ...in order to settle disputes. This is present in both of the scriptures... ...but particularly in the Matthew 18 passage... Where Jesus says to go to the person, you and them alone. You know, if we would heed that advice. And if we would seek out, seek to work out our differences with one another in person, face to face. Can you imagine how different our world would be? Particularly in this day and age. I mean, part of the reason why we have so much unresolved conflict in our world today is because so much of our discourse with one another about the things that we disagree on is mediated through impersonal public channels. We share our opinions and disagreements with one another through social media like Facebook or Twitter. We air our grievances and we try to sway public opinion through through gossip within our neighborhood or with our friend groups. More hope, high-profile individuals mediate their conflicts through, through the media or through attorneys. All of that ends up being counterproductive to actually resolving a conflict. That was the whole point of the game of telephone that we played earlier this morning with the kids. It was a visual reminder of the fact that when you involve others in a message that you need to communicate, uh, the message will undoubtedly get distorted, right? Tones change, heart gets lost, messages get mixed. It's far easier to engage in that kind of communication, but it's also far less effective. We lose civility and empathy, and compassion, and the humanity of the other person when we depersonalize a conflict. Instead, Jesus tells us to go directly to one another. You and them alone. It takes wisdom, it takes maturity, it takes courage, it takes trust in God that He'll be present with us. But this is what He calls us to do. Now I need to really quickly acknowledge a couple of important caveats about that. Because this may not always be true if you're dealing with a conflict situation where there is an unequal power dynamic involved in a relationship. Like with a a supervisor or a boss or an employer. It's also certainly not true in cases of abuse. Where you need an advocate and a witness in some of those circumstances. Ken Sandy in his book, The Peacemakers, talks about a number of those issues. And I'd be happy to have conversations with anybody uh, who has questions or concerns about a particular uh, situation that you may find yourself in. So there are caveats to consider. But in general, it is almost always best to go person to person. That is the right way to engage in a conflict. Next is the right time. When is the right time to engage a conflict resolution? In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says that the right time is now. He places conflict resolution as a highest priority in our lives. Even over our worship of God. Really, it's as part of our worship of God, I think. He says that if you're offering your gift at the altar... And there, remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there, before the altar. First, go and be reconciled. Then, come and offer your gift. That's profound. Jesus is showing us that we can't worship God rightly if we're living in conflict with one another. We see this profoundly at the end of Jesus' teaching on the Lord's Prayer, where after He teaches us to ask for forgiveness of our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us, He then says that if you forgive others their trespasses, your Heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Jesus is telling us that it's not possible to worship God rightly and live in unaddressed conflict with another person. If we are unable or unwilling to forgive someone the wrong that they have committed against us, it's a sign that there's something going on in our heart where we don't really understand the forgiveness that we've been given by God. We can't worship God. And remain in unforgiveness with one another. This is why we pass the peace each Sunday in our church service. Prior to presenting our offerings before the Lord. Prior to coming to the table of fellowship with God and with one another. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. And give no opportunity to the devil. Which is what lingering conflict does. The time to deal with your conflict is always now. And finally, whose responsibility is it to initiate conflict resolution? What we see in both of our passages is that the responsibility is yours. You always have the responsibility to initiate and to engage when a situation needs to be reconciled. And it doesn't matter if you did something wrong to someone else... Or if someone else has done something wrong to you. In either case, it's your responsibility to initiate. That's part of the difference between Matthew chapter 5 and Matthew chapter 18. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, if you are at the altar and realize that someone has something against you, go and be reconciled. But in Matthew 18, Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, right? if you have something against him... Go and be reconciled. It doesn't matter whose fault it is. Whether someone is angry with you or whether you are angry with someone else, it doesn't matter. In either and in every case, the responsibility to make peace falls to you. It is always our responsibility to go and to seek reconciliation. And when you put all of that together... What we see is that whenever there is a conflict that we are involved in, whether it's our fault or not, we have the responsibility to make it the highest priority in our lives, to go directly to the one with whom we are in conflict and to seek reconciliation in order to restore them if they have made a transgression or to apologize and to ask for forgiveness if we have wronged them in some way. We are to leave behind all the ideas of revenge and making them pay for what they did wrong. And we are to entrust that to the Lord. And instead we are to be an agent agent of peace and of reconciliation and of blessing. Returning any evil done against us with good. By seeking to restore the one with whom we are in conflict. That is the path of conflict resolution. That is is the way to be a peacemaker. And I know that's not easy. Many people would prefer to avoid conflict and act as if everything's okay rather than enter in to the difficult and messiness of relationships. But as Christians, we can't do that to one another. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his book Life Together, wrote... That nothing is so cruel as the tenderness that consigns another to their sin. And nothing can be more compassionate than the severe rebuke that calls one back from the path of sin. This is the way of love, of true love. This is why conflict resolution is always essential. Because it's the cruelest thing Not to do. It's the most loving thing to do. And it's what God has done for us in Christ. Making our conflict with Him a highest priority. Taking the responsibility to come directly to us in the Word made flesh. Calling us to repentance in order to restore our relationship with Him. Overcoming our evil by his good. This is how God has loved us in Christ. He tells us to go and do the same. As I have loved you, so you should love one another. We're to follow him in this work. We're to imitate his example. It is the way that we glorify him in the midst of the conflict that we face in our lives. Church, having been changed by what he has done for us, let us go and seek to do the same for one another, for God's glory and for our good.